0: Grace, mercy, peace be multiplied to you, the most blessed of all people. Blessed because both because you know the one true saving God and your Savior Jesus, and more importantly, because you are known by Him. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, the 19th century author Charles Dickens began his masterpiece, A Tale of Two Cities, with these words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Scholars argue over what Dickens actually meant by those words, but the thing about great literature is that you get to decide. You get to import those words and determine for yourselves what they mean or how they move you or how they instruct you. So my takeaway from those words is that any given situation can be the best of times or can be the worst of times and you get to decide which. To put the thing in modern terms given what you see in the news what you see on the internet what assaults you every day (coughs) would you characterize the times in which we live now as the best of times or the worst of times depends doesn't it depends where your focus is depends what you what consumes you, what fills your world. If you are all consumed with politics and perversion and lawlessness and all of that, you will come to the inevitable conclusion that these are the worst of times. And your life, your conduct, your attitude, your body language will reflect that. Things are bad. You'll look like Eeyore, walking around, woe is me. Is that how God wants Christians to be, to live, to act? As though we live in terrible times and woe is us. And then a strange thing happens. When you turn off the news, when you shut off what's going on out there in the world, in that sin-broken world, from which we should expect nothing less than what we see, When you shut that off and you focus on your own life, what's happening to you, what's going on in your life, and that will determine if you're filled with joy or filled with sorrow, anxiety, apprehension, gloom, and doom. If you focus on the good things in your conscience, that's huge, and we just take it for granted. We have enough money, not just to survive, but to live Comfortably, And if it doesn't look like you took anything. Your closets and your drawers are still mostly full. You have to look and decide what pair of shoes you're going to wear. You can choose to look at what's hard, disagreeable, or what you don't have, or you can choose to look at what you do have. Now, for you youngest ones, here's how this works in part for you. You can look at your sister and you can see that she has a barbie. And you look at yours and suddenly you want that Barbie. And now you're filled with sorrow and frustration because you possibilities, the same goal. We can look at what we have and be joyful or we can look at what we don't have and fill our world with gloom and doom. The fact is, our joy should be a continual Christian sentiment because... We have the promises of God as the foundation, and then we have the world of good that he's given us, the beauty and the joy here in this life, and the best is still yet to come. Just astounding. Now, it's not to say, of course, there won't be hard things. Every life is filled with them. We expect that in a broken world. Where are we going to focus? What's going to be our confidence and our joy? So with this in mind, listen to our text for this morning. It'll start a bit jarring given this opening. But hear the words of Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the very the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. This is God's word. Pure, certain, right in every aspect, that the God who gave us these words would give us joy and confidence this morning by studying them, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. So given the positive tone of the introduction, did you find it a little jarring when we got to the text? Because they were pretty harsh, sobering words, aren't they? In fact, if you go back a few verses prior to this, it's even worse. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Hmm. That's part of the challenge of textual sermons or what we call pericopes, where just scripture readings are picked for each Sunday and then you speak on those scripture readings. The problem is the context has to be included very often. It's sort of like, if you walked into the middle of a play and sat down or started watching a movie after it had already been a third of the way through, and you're trying to figure out what's going on and what you missed, so what's the context of these words? Jesus is sending out his 12 apostles, and this was the first sending out. And he was trying to teach them a lesson first Because you remember he sent them out without any money, without a change of clothes, without any weapon, without anything. Just take the clothes on your back and go. What he was trying to teach them was, you can trust that I will provide for your needs. When you are about my work, you can trust me. Remember he also sent the 72 out with the same instructions. Don't take anything, just go. Go to the cities and tell them, The kingdom is at hand, Jesus is coming, prepare them so when I go, they'll be looking and they'll be prepared to receive me. But take no provisions, nothing. In Luke's gospel, we hear what happened when the 72 returned. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Every part of this dialogue is important. Every part is informative, instructive. It goes to the heart, in fact, of our study this morning. It's silly to imagine, because Jesus warned them, it's silly to imagine that these people that went out, the 12 about to go out from the perspective of our text and the 72 that he sent before, it's silly to imagine that they encountered no opposition, that there was nothing disagreeable, nothing hard. Of course there was. They were going to the godless, and a substantial number of them didn't want to hear what they were telling them. You remember how he warned them, if anyone does not receive you or if they reject you, shake the very dust off your feet and leave. That judgment on that city or those people will be bad. So Jesus said, expect bad times. But what, was, what filled their hearts, what was in their focus when they returned, they returned with joy and excitement. Why? Because they focused on what went right not on what went wrong. They didn't focus on the rejection or the animosity that they obviously received. They focused on the power of God's word at work through them. Now, Jesus had to redirect them a little bit, didn't he? Because they were excited that even the demons were subject to us. So why do you think he directed them away from that? That would be pretty cool. Why? Because... That was a special time, and that may not last. Just like our outward circumstances might not last. So he redirected their excitement, their joy to what? The fact that their names were written in heaven. That has to be the bedrock, doesn't it? That has to be the foundation of everything. Because that's uh, the, the thing on which we build, Christ the cornerstone, that doesn't change. That's solid. We always have that. Jesus was, came to this earth. He was sent by his Father. He lived that perfect, holy, sinless life, walked sinlessly to the cross, and paid for every one of our sins there. Done. Accomplished. Can never be undone. God declared the sin debt of the world to be paid on the basis of what Jesus did. Not only can we add nothing, we need not add nothing to it. It's done. Declared by God to be true. Your sin debt has been paid. And then when the Holy Spirit works faith in us, we heard in our second reading, though we were dead, couldn't make a decision for him, he brought us a spiritual life, that gift is ours. Nothing can change that. Nothing in all the world can rob us of that foundation, that footing, that basis. So here we are, Christians, where do we first place ourselves? On that sure foundation that I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God because Jesus did what he did. And the Holy Spirit brought me to faith in that. I believe that he did what he did. That's what faith is. I trust that when I get to heaven's door, when I face God on judgment day, He's not going to say, what good did you do? He's going to say, he's going to look at that one thing. Did you die believing that my son paid for your sins? And when the answer is yes, come, blessed my father, inherit the kingdom. So that's where we start. And that's why Jesus redirected those disciples, those early ones that he sent out, to that. That should be the basis of your joy. And then whatever follows that, you can can approach with confidence. You can approach with a joyful heart because you know not only where you stand, but you also know where you're going and that the best is obviously yet to come. Still in our text, Jesus teaches us that our joy could be buried under life's hardships. He's warning us about that. We have the power to do that if we allow it. Jesus spoke the words of our text when he sent the 12 out, and he warned them, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, the children will rise against parents. Doesn't that sound awful? And we'll have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake? This is a challenge confronting us this morning. Can we really be joyful when we read words like that? And it's a profoundly sobering question. I would say that if you aren't sober about this, if you're not hearing those words, then you're not thinking carefully about them, or you're not thinking deeply enough about them. Because it's not as though our God says, everything's going to be great. Jesus is your Savior, go and be happy. He's warning us. There's going to be bad things coming. There's going to be hard things. Even those that you love, personally love, the nearest and dearest, will turn out to be against you. They will be unbelievers. So Jesus, God has given us a mission, hasn't he? A great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, to speak what we know to all. And then we have to ask a question soberly because there's two things at work in every Christian heart, two realizations. One, we know from God's word that if we do what he told us to do, there's going to be bitter hardship. There's going to be confrontation. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be hard things in our life. And two, the other side of us, that new man knows, that that's God's will that we speak. And there's no other way that these people, the godless in our lives, can be saved unless they hear that word of God the law and the gospel that God gave us. Those two things continually work against each other in us because we're hardwired to want to fit in. We're hardwired to be loved and admired. That's just everyone. We all want to be respected and accepted. And so we know that if we do this, we're going to incite the very thing that Jesus warned about. So why would the Prince of Peace Why would a man like Jesus, the God-man Jesus, who was so kind, so loving, why would he tell us to do the very thing that he knew would incite this, would bring about this animosity, confrontation, hatred? Three reasons. First, because he knows that that hatred is there. We're not creating it. The hatred, the animosity can appear to be dormant, but it's there. And it does do no good to pretend it is not. If you've ever had or seen a wound that was infected, covered by a band-aid or a bandage, You young people, you know how much you don't want Mom to rip that Band-Aid off or that bandage, and yet Mom knows if we don't treat that, it's going to get worse. On a spiritual level, it's so critical. That hatred, that animosity, that godlessness, that unbelief cannot be allowed. And that's the second reason. Not only does it already exist, God knows this is the only treatment for it. This is the only way it can be dressed. the only way those who live as enemies of God can be made friends of God and fellow Christians. And the third, interestingly enough, has to do with our own preservation, our own walk with our Savior. Because God knows us, and therefore he knows that if you pretend long enough, the pretend can become your reality. Here's an example of what that means. There's ample anecdotal evidence that the Soviet Union during the Cold War planted deep cover operatives throughout the United States. They were superbly trained to speak and even think and act as Americans. They had whole cities that looked like American cities and everybody had to speak and they had experts there that got the dialects just right, so they trained them They got them somehow into the United States, and they told them, just live in the United States like you're an American until you get the call from the motherland and then do what we tell you to do. Guess what happened? They spoke like Americans, they lived like Americans, and they became Americans. And a substantial number of them, when the... Motherland called and said, we want you to do this, blow up this, or whatever. They said, no, we're Americans now. The same thing can happen to Christians. We pretend long enough, just want to fit in with the world. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to cause discord or hatred or animosity. We're just going to blend in, and we can actually become part of the world. God doesn't want that for us at all. Our text spells out the advantages of the other scenario, when we do what Jesus called us to do, where Christians strip off their camouflage and say, as our text said, in the light what Christ said in the dark, proclaim on the housetops what we once heard whispered. The result is that God is your friend and ally. You get how critical that is? God is the one enemy we cannot afford to have. That's why in our text, he said, don't fear those who can hurt or kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. And once we just walk in his commandments, we know, we have this confidence that God is our ally, that God is with us, and then we can say, What can man do to me? Who can hurt me, really hurt me? If God is my protector, God is my defender, God is my provider, and I know I stand on that solid bedrock of Jesus Christ crucified, I am a sinless child of God, and then we look forward and we think, and my name is written in the book of heaven, I can then be free to look at this life not focusing on the bad but on the good. Not focusing on those who reject the words, but focusing on that one who actually heard. And you see it in their eyes when you talk to them, when you share the word of God. And they're listening and they hear. And a child of Satan is turned into a child, an everlasting child of God. So much joy around us. That has to be among the greatest of life because all the fickle things of this world, they can all change that which makes us so happy now. Those of you who garden, you look at your garden, it's growing so well. One hailstorm away from disaster. Pick a thing in your life that gives you joy, a secular thing. Not people, but stuff. Every single thing is one small disaster away from God but none of the rest of this can be taken away from us. Nothing. Jesus Christ already paid for our sins. God has declared us not guilty. God has given us work to do, and he promised that he will work through that. His power will convert and save, not all, but some. So like those 72 that were sent out, and later here, the 12, they came back filled with joy. Let that fill your world. You can choose to do that. And then trust that that one who called you to faith, that provided so much joy to you now, if you would just notice, can preserve you right up until he calls you home. Amen.